All right, happy Sabbath. Okay, ready to go. So what I want to do quickly um, is we'll have a word of prayer. We'll review very quickly what we've looked at in the book of Acts, and then we'll move into chapter 4 today. So let's bow our heads and we'll just ask God to to come again, to be with us, and to speak to us now through Acts chapter 4. So let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, before we open your word, we need the Holy Spirit, the author of it, to guide us into truth. Father, we've come here today because we're here seeking and searching Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we study together, may you come and you speak to our hearts. May you tell us who are we and where are we heading? What are we here to do as a church? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say. When I did Acts chapter 2, I began with a question. Now, does anyone remember what question that was? What is church? Now, um, we looked at what is church, and as we talked about it, as we went through Acts chapter 2, we analyzed that really at the beginning of any movement, really it, 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 it births with an identity, and it starts with an identity, and that identity drives the mission of that movement, whether it's a, a business or whatever it may be. And we saw just as it was with the church, the church began with a message, with an understanding of who Jesus was and what he was calling them to do. They had experienced the gospel. They had experienced God working in their life, and they went forth proclaiming this message. And we saw that the church is what? Does anyone know? Church is, I think we came up with a word, community. Would that be a good way to put it? A community. Now, often we we look at, isn't it? Because when we say, I'm going to church, what do we think of? We think of a building, right? But what we really dug into is we saw that in the early church, they didn't see church as a place. They saw church as a what? People. They saw it as each other. They saw it as a community of faith united together in a common belief with God. But today I have a question for you. Before we open the Bible, I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to answer this question. Since we know what the church is, What is the role or the work of the church? Think about that for just one minute. Talk to the person next to you. If you're by yourself, you can talk to yourself. That's fine. Um, What is the role? Why are we here? Okay, let's get some feedback. I'd love to hear what you guys have come up with. Maybe we'll get two or three responses. Would anyone like to put their hand up and, and give me an answer for what is the role? Why are we here? What are we called to do? Has anyone got a response? Yeah, Kim. Okay, a community to share the word. Do you like that? We're called to share the word. Oh, awesome. How's this? To show the world that God is love and that God what? loves us. Is that, is that a good thing to do? So we're to show, we're to reveal that message. Okay, does anyone else want to add to that? That's pretty good, isn't it? 
as, as exactly what you're saying too, Kim, is this message, isn't it? So the reason why we're here, as we, we can probably all agree, is we're here to share to the world that God is love. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. Because I believe that as we move into Acts chapter 4, we now get insight into this very thing. We've seen the message. It birthed in Acts chapter 2 with the message, with the power of the Holy Spirit. They went forth preaching this message. But as we move through the Gospels, we start to see the application of the message. We start to see the manifestation of God as love. So <clears throat> let's move into Acts chapter 4. And here we see, as we move through Acts 4, we're going to look at this, uh, these key sections. We have the arrest and the trial of Peter and John. We have the Peter's defense before the uh, Sanhedrin. We have the Apostles' Prayer, and then we have the church community, active or active in the church community. So as we pick up in Acts chapter 4, the setting here is they, they um, as we, uh, last week Jared spoke to us about in Acts chapter 3, the first real miracle done by the Apostles um, without Jesus. This is the first great miracle of the early church. And here, Peter and John were going up to the temple to worship. And they see a man lame who was there, paralytic. And what did they say to him? Gold and silver I do not have, but what I have I what? I give unto you, pick up your bed and walk. And so basically this man then leaps to his feet and he's restored and he runs around praising who? Peter and John? Praising God. And what, what does it do? All the people in the temple come running over to see what was going on. And then Peter takes this opportunity to preach to them the gospel, the message of a God is love, and that God is here to do this work for everybody. So they preach this message. And it's while they're preaching this message that we pick up in Acts chapter 4 to see what happens. So this larger group was there listening to Peter. Peter's preaching the gospel. And Acts chapter 4 verse 1, it says, and as they spoke unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the who? The Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hold on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now evening. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word, what? Believed. And the number of that men was about 5,000. So here's the setting. Peter's there in the middle, or he's towards the end of his preaching. He's preaching, he's preaching. Next thing, the guards come, the temple guards come, and they arrest Peter and John. Why? Because they'd done a miracle? Because they were preaching what message? That Jesus had died and resurrected. Now, the question is, why is it that this particular message was so challenging or caused such a ruckus to the religious leaders? Especially, as Luke mentions, the Sadducees. So the question is, who were the Sadducees and why is it that they were so upset with this particular message? Now, if we go back and we understand, we look at who the Sadducees were, they were basically the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They were in charge primarily of the temple and the religious services that occurred around the temple. Now, you could say that they were in, in opposition to the Pharisees theologically. The Pharisees were what we would term today more of like a conservative theological group. And the Sadducees were more, we might say, liberal. Now, that's not entirely true, but that's the sort of the extremes we have. The Pharisees were more in tune with what Jesus taught, with, with what the apostles taught. The Sadducees, however, were more uh, left-wing. They, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They taught they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, etc. They had a, a belief and a teaching that made them sympathize also more with prosperity, with worldly gain. They were... 
really partnered with the Romans, they were sympathizers with the Romans, and therefore, because of that, a lot of the Pharisees didn't like them, they were the more religious zealots, they, um, therefore there was a lot of dissension between them. So as we have here, the Sadducees take Peter and John, they put them in prison for the evening, and the next morning, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, and here is an image of the Sanhedrin around the temple, and in, chapter, um, in verse 5 we pick up, and it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas high priest and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? So here's the setting. Peter and John are standing there before the Sanhedrin, and as they're there, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they represent Israel itself, are there and they're looking at them saying, by what power or by what name have you done this miracle to this man? Now, there's several things we need to pick up in these verses, which is very interesting. One, who is it that they're questioning? John and who? Peter. Now, I believe it's possible that these men, they, they, were, they knew who Peter was. And previous to this, when Peter was asked, are you the one that is with Jesus? How did he respond previous to this? denied him. And is it possible that these very men, by sitting here up on, their, up on their throne, they're looking at Peter and they're going, we got this. He'll deny him. He has before. And as Peter's come forward, they're going, by what name did you do this? What do you think Peter's going to do this time? Do you think he's learnt? Hope so. Here we have the religious rulers threatened by the message that Peter and John are preaching. And the only way they can deal with this, they have this man who's been healed, they have Peter and John here boldly professing, teaching in the temple court. They're brought before them and they're thinking, all we need to do is threaten them and this will be dealt with quickly. But Peter doesn't respond the way they think because something has happened in Peter's life. Peter's experienced the gospel in its true power. And Peter stands there not as someone defeated, but he stands victorious in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. Satan will always point you back to your past sins. And just as he is doing through the religious leaders who were too hungry to hold on to their power because they didn't want things to change, they had the power, they could threaten people, they could do what they want. Peter's standing there, they're thinking all we have to do is threaten him to point out his past. Satan works the same way in our lives. Satan says, look at what you've done. You can't stand here. You can't be bold and confident for God. Who are you to talk about Jesus? Look at your sins. But Peter has experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. And he stands here, as the Bible says, confidently, bold in Jesus, not in himself. We cannot face the devil in our own power, amen? But the weakest person, armed with the power of God, can stand against the agencies of hell because we're armed with Jesus. If we fall on our knees each day, we have the strength to stand and to face our enemies, to face our adversary, because it's not us. But as Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but 
Christ who lives in me and the life which I do now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who saved me. So here's the thing. When Peter stands there now, he's standing as someone restored in Jesus. It doesn't matter what he's done. It matters who he is now. It matters that he's been forgiven. It matters that he stands there confidently, not in himself, because he knows he's not perfect. He knows he's a sinful man. But Jesus says, I will make you a fisher of men. And Jesus is calling every single one of us, friends. It doesn't matter. You're not perfect because I'm not. If we waited till we were perfect and we waited till we knew everything, how long would it be till we went out and did something? Because it's not about us, it's about him. And here Peter is standing here before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. Previously, he's seen what the power these men have. These men have the ability to take his Savior and to have him brutally murdered in front of them. But Peter stands there confidently because he knows one thing. You can't threaten him with death because Jesus has the power over. How do you threaten someone like that? By what power or by what name have you done this? Notice Peter's response. Verse 7. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with what? Said to them, you rulers and the people of the elders of Israel. He was respectful. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made what? Whole. Now, there's something interesting in this language. Now, if, we under, if you look at the Greek in this word, where he says that this man is made what? Whole, or this man is restored. The Greek word here is the word that Jesus was often used, uh, would often use. He says, this man is standing before you sozoed. Sozo, that's the Greek word. In other words, the word here meaning that Peter stands to, he says, this man stands before you sozoed. The word sozo means to forgive and to heal. Did you catch that? You can't separate those two things. We see examples of this all through the life of Jesus. Remember when the paralytic man came down? Let's turn there in our Bibles. I'll give you this example. Matthew chapter 9. Keep your finger in Acts 4. I have to point this out. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus here, a paralytic man is brought before him, just like this paralytic man. And Jesus does something to the paralytic man that illustrates to these people what his power is. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. What did it mean to be healed from a Jewish perspective? How did they view healings, miracles, this sort of thing? Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2. And behold, they brought to him a man, sick of the palsy, lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their what? Faith, and apparently faith is something you see, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's a sick man brought to Jesus. Now, if you were sick, if you were paralytic, or you were blind, or whatever it may be, what was he expecting Jesus to say? You are healed. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Because the, the word that Jesus uses here is, you are sozo. Because when Jesus forgives, he also what? Heals. Because you cannot separate them. When God comes into our life, when he forgives us, when he moves with the Holy Spirit into our life, he heals our life as well. Amen? That is the power of the gospel. The gospel is a message of sozo, forgiveness and healing. You see, this is the point I want to I labor this point right now for us. 
as we move through the book of Acts, we're going to see a lot of miracles done. But what do miracles really mean? Why does God perform miracles? Are they there for us to look at and go, wow, now I can believe in God? Is that what miracles are for? Are miracles there to, to just show that God has supernatural power, that he can bend chemistry? What is the purpose of miracles? Why was it that Peter standing there and he's saying, this man here is an evidence of something? What do miracles testify to? Often or through the Bible, one thing we see is this. The Jews, we have to understand how the Jews saw diseases and sicknesses. Now, the way that the Jews saw someone who was paralyzed, the way that the Jews saw someone who was blind or someone who had a physical deformity or whatever it may be, is what did they think caused that? Sin. Now, you guys may remember the story in John chapter 9 when Jesus is walking along and he sees a man born, what? Blind. He was blind from birth. and, and, And they said, oh, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born what? Blind. So they associate physical deformity, if you're paralyzed or you're sick, they go, ah, sin. That's interesting, isn't it? Why did they see it that way? Were they right? What do you guys think? Was Was there some truth to that? Now, Jesus corrects them and he says, this is not how to see it. They were right, but they were also wrong when they were blaming the man that he was there because of his own sins. But this is the point, and I'll use this illustration um, to make the point. Now, if you were to picture a large tree, okay, this is my tree. Everyone see my tree? And let's just say, for example, this is to, to explain to you one of the ways to understand how sin operates. God is the source of life, amen? Eternal life. And if we were to say that the world was like a branch, this is just an example, but the world was like a branch on the tree. Now, what, where does the branch get its source of life from? The roots, the trunk, right? And that brings forth the life for the branch. Now, when sin entered the world, the Bible says that sin does what? Separates us from what? From God. Now, God is the source of life, and if we're separated, what's happening? We're separated from eternal life, aren't we? So if you were to put it in this imagery, let's say I snap the branch off and I have the branch and there's the tree. What is going to naturally happen to a branch if I've snapped it off the tree? Is it going to wither? It's going to die, isn't it? It starts to go in a state of entropy, decay, degradation. The Jews understood one of the ways they saw the world, they saw the world around us and, and everything around us, they saw that sin had this effect of entropy. Everything was breaking down. Do you understand? So when they would see the world, when they see earthquakes, and they saw that this was a result of sin. Sin was breaking down. The earth is waxing old like a garment, the Bible says. Even we ha- every one of us is born with a life-to-death cycle. So old age, eyes going down, wrinkles, all these things are a sign of what sin is bringing. Does that make sense? So when we see someone paralyzed, when we see someone who's affected physically, they would see it automatically as an effect of what? Sin. So to them, someone who's paralyzed, someone who's blind, that, that was a cause of sin, whether it be direct or indirectly. Does that make sense? So here we are. And for the Jews, they understood that all of these things were an effect of sin. In the large, big picture of the, of the great controversy, they saw that the, the results of sin was breaking down, degrading, destroying mankind, destroying the world, everything. Was it just physically or what else was it? 
morally, emotionally, everything. Everything was breaking down. Now Jesus comes along. And Jesus has several I am statements, seven I am statements in the, in the Gospel of John. And this is to illustrate the point I'm going to make. The reason why we have miracles, make sure you catch this, are to, are the, are to manifest the message. Miracles are a manifestation of the message. Now, let me give you an example. Jesus comes along and he says, I am the light of the world in John 8. He gives a message. Then he supports the message by getting a blind man in John 9 and opening his eyes. Does that make sense? So what is he just done to the process of sin? Reversed it. Then he goes over and he says, I'm the bread of life. And he takes five loaves and two fish. And then what does he do? Feeds. Okay. He says, I, in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He makes a statement. Then what does he do to Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth. So what are miracles doing? Jesus is preaching that I am life. I have the ability to do what to this branch? Regraft it. I can reverse the process of sin. I am life itself. And wherever Jesus would walk, in the presence of Jesus, sin would be reversed. Does that make sense? So this very Jesus Christ, this same Jesus, had the ability to touch blind eyes, to touch deaf ears, to touch the process of sin and reverse it. And he was preaching through the miracles themselves that he had the ability to reverse sin. Does that make sense? So here we are, back in Acts chapter 4, what did this mean to the religious leaders? What did this mean to the people standing there, analyzing, looking at this man who's healed, and the message that Peter is preaching? Because the message that Peter is preaching is testifying to the very miracle that's been there, um, right, right in front of them. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 3, G- Peter's been preaching this message. And if you look at verse 16, Acts chapter 3, is everyone there? Verse 16, he says, And his name, preaching his message, and his name through faith in his what? Name has made this man what? Strong, whom you see and know ye, that the faith which is by him has given him what? This perfect soundness or this restoration. So Peter is preaching a message that Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ, has the power to reverse, to restore life in you. And here this man standing before me is a testament to this very work. Does that make sense? So the message that Peter is preaching is supported by the miracle of the man that is released or restored back to the image, back to the restoration. Now, this man, as Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse, we'll pick up in verse 10, he says, be it known unto you, this is the message, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whose name? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God, what? Raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you, what? Whole. So the question I have for you is this. What is the gospel about? Is the gospel simply a message that Jesus died for our sins and that's really nice to know? Or does it go further? Is the gospel simply a message that Jesus died on a cross and it doesn't really have much to do with me? He died, I can accept that and I'll be saved and I'll go on living the way I live? Or is the gospel a message 
of Jesus died, but he what? Rose again. And through that power, through that, my faith in his resurrection, Jesus is able to take my dead life and to resurrect me to a new life. The gospel is a message that Jesus wants to restore me just as much as he restored this man standing there that day. The gospel that we preach is not a message of stagnation. It's not a message that you accept Jesus and go on doing what you want. But when you accept the gospel, as Paul says, it is the power of God unto salvation and that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and it tears into our heart and it changes us day by day. Amen? We're moving. We're changing. We're being restored by Jesus Christ. You know, Ellen White, she summarizes the entire gospel in one word. I love it. She says, the gospel is restoration. Everything Adam and Eve had over here in Genesis 1, the eternal life, all the things they had, sin separated, cut us off. Jesus came, he paid the price, he won the victory, he gained it all back so that by the time we get to Revelation, we have a new what? Heaven, a new earth, new bodies, everything restored through the power of Jesus Christ. The future kingdom is making itself manifest in the present. Jesus is previewing for the people what he will do at the end of time. Restoration. The message of the church is a message of restoration, of a God of love that wants to come into our lives and heal and fix and bind the damages of our life. When Jesus left, he said that this very work that I've done, I give to you. So what's the work of the church? What's our role? If the message is restoration, what are we to do? What do you guys think? What's our role? If Jesus walked around preaching restoration and then doing it, what's our role? Demonstrate. It's one thing to preach, isn't it? But what else do we have to do? Is it our job to go out and to heal and to help and to feed and to love and to show a world that not just through us pontificating about Jesus, but through us actually doing it. And the very evidences of the things that we do as a church is preaching the message of a God that is coming to restore lives. Amen? That's why we're here. That's the early church. That's why God put us on this earth, to do a work of restoring as God works through us to preach through our words and preach through our actions. God is here to restore. Amen? So as Peter stood there, as he's preaching this message, as he says, this God, this name of Jesus Christ is the very access to the power to restore lives. And this man right here is a testimony to that power. Verse 11, he draws on something interesting. In verse 11, he says to the Jewish leaders, to the Sanhedrin, this is the stone. Who's the stone? Jesus. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders which has become the head of the corner. Here, Peter's drawing our minds to Psalms 118. 
And he's basically saying to the religious leaders who were known as the builders, they were, their job was there to build up the kingdom of God. Their job was there to build up the community of faith, to create their environment for growth. He's saying, you are the builders, but you have been erred. You have made a great error because as you are building, you have thrown away the very chief cornerstone. You must come to realization what you have done. He says in verse 12, there is salvation in how many others? No others. He is your only option. He is your only hope. He is the only one that we can get access back to life. You have rejected that cornerstone. You have erred greatly as religious teachers and leaders. You know, the message that Peter was presenting, the message of the early church was not a popular one because it was a message of change. What word? Change. Friends, if when you face Jesus Christ, when the gospel comes into our life, be prepared for change. But you know why so many people don't want it? When we look at these religious leaders, do they have, as far as worldly gain concerns, do they have pretty much everything they wanted as far as the world goes? Were they rich? They were millionaires of their day. Did they have power? They had prestige and honor. They had everything they thought. They were comfortable in their environment. But the message that Peter was preaching is that God is working right now to bring a change. God is working a change in the lives of his people. God is renewing, bringing in his kingdom. Be prepared for change. And isn't it interesting that the ones who have the most to lose are the ones who resist change the most? That when we're comfortable, and I'm preaching to myself, when we're comfortable in our position, we've got everything we need. I'm happy. I don't want change. We reject it. And we say, no, God, I don't want that. And we look to ourselves and we say, God, I reject this. And this is what the religious leaders were doing as they're standing there, as they cannot deny the power and the miracle that's been performed in front of them and the message that they are preaching. They know they're right, but they're comfortable. And they know if they accept this, one, they have to change, and two, it would tell the people that they were responsible for killing who? Jesus Christ. And instead of embracing the change of the gospel, they rejected it. Is that why, perhaps, that the people who are most receptive to the gospel in this world are the poor? Because do they want change? What does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. We cannot access the kingdom of God until we first realize that we need to change. Amen? We must be in a state opposite to these men. How sad it was that God was trying to get through to them over and over, that their condition was not right with God, that they had to make a change, but they didn't want to. They sold out on eternal life for a few years of pleasure on this one. They looked at the men at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter, they saw the what of Peter? And John. And perceived that they were what? Unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled. They marveled. Do you know that Peter and many of these other men probably couldn't even read and write. 
5% of the Roman world could read and write in this period. 5%. That's why Jesus spoke to them always about fish and lambs and things that they could relate to. They marveled that these men who stood there quoting the scriptures like it was nothing. They marveled. Who trained these men? What does it go on to say? And they took knowledge of them that they had been with who? Jesus. Let me tell you something, friends. You don't need the great academic schools to know your Bible. You just need time with Jesus. Time with Jesus. God, Jesus says, I'll give you what to say. I'll be with you. I'll guide you. Time with Jesus every day in the word, in prayer, in contemplation will prepare you greater than anything you'll ever face. Time with Jesus. You know, I heard a great um, philosopher who became a Christian. He was an atheist. He became a Christian. And someone came to him one day and said, are you a Christian? He said, that's not for me to say. That's for you to say, isn't it? I thought, how true. Can people testify to our lives the very same things that the, the Sadducees could? They've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. All they talk about, all they sing about, all they praise about is Jesus. Beholding, verse 14, and beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say what? Nothing against it. Not only had they preached the message, but the message has been supported by the restoration of the man before them. They commanded them to go out, and, and here the, the religious leaders could say nothing. The evidence was there, so they told Peter and John to go out. They got together, and they basically said, um, instead of accepting this message, what do we do? Let's find a way to resist it. You know, isn't it true, friends, that today the same thing happens in each one of us, or the same thing happens in the world? You know, I meet people every week who walk up to me and say, I don't want God, so I'm going to find a reason not to believe. Is that true? The evidence can be right in front of us, but we say, I don't want God, so I'll find that not to believe in it. That's the rebellious human heart. I don't want change. I don't want God, so I'll find a reason not to believe. And here the religious leaders, as they pull them out, they take them out of the Sanhedrin, and they come together. What shall we do in verse 16 to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot what? It's too late. We can't cover this up like we tried to do the resurrection. Everyone saw this, so what do we do? We can't say, oh, it was just he was already healed or there's nothing. We can't cover this up. Verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us what? Let's threaten them. They think maybe this has always worked for us. I mean, we have the privilege, we have the power, we're, we're, good here, we're in good cahoots with the Romans. You know, all we have to do is threaten them with death and it'll be sorted. Just tell them not to preach anymore in this name. Is it so in the Bible that as we near the end of time, in the time that we're living, as we're getting closer to the second coming, does the Bible say that we will face a similar time where church and state will unite, where people will be threatened because they teach a certain message? What kind of personality will we need to face such trials? 
What belief will we need to have to face such circumstances? Here, they eventually bring Peter and them back in. In verse 19, and Peter and John stood there. They stood before the Sanhedrin and they're thinking, we'll just threaten them. This won't be hard. We've done it. It works when everybody else will just tell them, we'll cast you out of the temple. You'll be a religious outcast. We'll threaten you with the Roman death. There's no problem. They bring Peter and John back in. And what does Peter and John say in in verse 19? You know, Peter and John, at this point, they probably thought they were about to die, but they didn't care. Verse 19, Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot speak the things which we have seen and heard, amen? And when they further what? Threatened them, they let them go. Here's the question I have for you, and this is, this is right for us now, as we face the trials in our life. How can you threaten someone with death who's not afraid of it? How do you threaten somebody with death when they've just seen their master resurrected? Go on, kill me. Who has the keys? Notice what it says in Hebrews. Keep your finger, you've got to read this text. Hebrews chapter 2. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 4. You've got to read this text. This is one to to mark and to memorize and to take home. Put it on your wall, whatever you have to do. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Notice this verse. How do we stand? What kind of mindset do we need to have to stand through the trials that is coming? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Is everyone there? Say amen. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's humanity, Jesus also himself likewise took part of the same. Notice this. That through what? Death he might destroy him, the devil, that had the power of death, that is the devil. So notice verse 15. And deliver, what's that word? Deliver them who through Fear of death, we're all their lifetime subject to bondage. So what is the gospel message? The gospel message is, yes, Jesus died to cleanse me of my sin. Jesus is resurrected to restore my life, to give me a changed life day by day, moment by moment. But the gospel goes further to point out that even death in the entropy of sin, the greatest enemy of God was death itself. And Jesus broke through death and has gained the victory over death so that you and I can have victory today. And as Peter and John stood there, they had just witnessed that victory. They had stood and talked and eaten with Jesus after the resurrection. It was a reality to their lives. What could men do to us? Because they saw him ascend to heaven and all of heaven's access was theirs as it is ours. And their life was breathed with a heart pounded with the message that Jesus rose from the dead and I have the same victory in Jesus Christ. What can men do to us? And as the Bible says, they went forth boldly in Jesus. Maybe the reason why we fail so often is we forget this message, amen? Because what did Jesus deliver us through? What of death? Fear of death. Are we so afraid to let go of this world then we're not ready to even take one step for Jesus. Are we so afraid? Are we so gripped 
with the things of this world that we don't want to let go, that Jesus is trying to pull us, and we're like, no, I want to stay here. Do we believe this message? Has this message truly, truly ingrained in your heart to the point that you walk forward boldly for God? The early church witnessed the resurrection. The early church were fueled by the passion and the power and the movement of Jesus Christ in their lives. There was nothing else they lived for. There was nothing that grabbed their attention more than Jesus, a God of love, a God of love that has come to restore a world that was disconnected to bring us back to God. As they let go, Peter and John run back to the early disciples, to the other apostles, to the, to the early church as they're praying, obviously, ceaselessly for them. They run back and there they are. They realize that Peter and John have been let go. They praise God. They have this prayer service. And there's a verse I want you to pick up as they start to praise God, as they've just faced a trial, as they've faced persecution. Jesus has promised them that this would happen. Notice what they say in verse 29 of Acts chapter 4. As they're praying, as they're they're praising God for what he's doing in their lives, Verse 28 and 29 is, For to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant your servants that with all what? Boldness they may speak thy word. Are they praying here for God? Please get rid of persecution. God, kill all of our enemies. What are they praying for? Are they praying to get rid of persecution? No, because what did Jesus say would happen? All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. Jesus says you'll be delivered up to synagogues and you'll be whipped and beaten, etc. Jesus warned them this would happen because the people who are most comfortable in their position don't want what? Change. And instead of change, they'll kill you, they'll persecute, they'll say things behind your back and this will happen and happen and happen till the end of time. We have two choices. So they pray not for persecution to cease, but to have what in persecution? Boldness. God, let us not fail you. Let us not fail you. Let us not run again as we did in Gethsemane. Let us not be afraid as we were, as the Pharisees used to to, to throw things at you and we would hide in the crowd. Let us not be afraid, but let us be bold because we know that you are God. We know that you're the one who has the power and we don't want to be afraid of what man can do. We want to be afraid of what you can do. Because Jesus said, fear not what man can do, that man can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in what? In hell. They pray for boldness. They pray for strength. And then the Holy Spirit's poured forth. Notice verse 31. And as they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with God with boldness. How do we get boldness? What do we need? We need the Spirit. And how do we get the Spirit? Pray. 
So often we want this without that. Is that right? So church, here's the question. Are we praying? Are we praying? Are we praying? Are we praying? Are we on our knees for God? Are we seeking out God's mercies? Are we pleading for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in our lives? As a response, exactly like Acts chapter 2, the community of God goes forward. Now the question I have as we sort of come to a close is this, what's the work of the church again? We, we summed it up on one word, starting with R, restoration. That's the essence of the gospel, am I right? What do we see the early church doing now in verse 32? And the multitude of them that believed were of one, what, heart and one soul. You know where the word community is, the root word common. Community are people who have something in common. Is that right? Neither said any of them at all that the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things which they had sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and the distribution was made unto every man according as he had what? What do we have here manifesting? Not just the words of restoration, but the actions. What is the church? What are we here to do? And you've heard the saying before, let us preach the gospel and if possible, use words. Let us preach the gospel always and if possible, use words. People don't know, people don't care how much we know until we, they know how much we what? Care. Jesus preached the gospel primarily through his hands, through his eyes, through his smile, and through his love for people. It's one thing to pontificate, it's one thing to speak the gospel, isn't it? But if we're not applying it, we've only got half of the gospel, is that right? So the challenge that I think God has for us today to remind us, to get us to rethink what is the church. Yes, we are a community, but we're a community with a message, amen? A message of restoration, a work as God works through us to show a dying world that God is love and that he's here to restore our lives, amen? If you have your devoted cards, I want to just give you an opportunity to just tick a box as we look at this very work of restoration with God in our lives, if you need one, put your hand up and the ushers will give you a, a connect card. This is an opportunity for you to just say, God, I want you to restore my life. If you need a connect card, just put your hands up and the ushers will give you one. If you need a pen, um, hopefully they got a pen. As we've seen in the scriptures today, as we've overviewed the book of Acts chapter 4, 
As we see the early church, we see a movement that knew clearly as they've analyzed, as they'd seen Jesus do for three and a half years. They'd seen Jesus work the message of restoration as he preached it and as he applied it in front of them. We too have the same calling to our lives today. It's one thing to talk. It's another thing to do. And God is challenging us today to step out and to restore and to heal lives for God. If you've got your, your, your card there, I want you to notice the box, the first box, and I've just put this down. It says, God, please take away my past sins and give me confidence to face the future. As we've seen Peter stand before the Sanhedrin, as Peter's standing there, he had all the reason from an earthly perspective to put his head down and walk out the room. But may we have the confidence of Peter, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And if you want to say, God, Satan keeps reminding me of my past sins. He keeps whispering in my ear and telling me I'm no good, telling me I'm nothing, telling me I can't be used. Tick that box and say, God, I don't want to hear it anymore. I want to have confidence in you and confidence in the forgiveness that you are giving to my life. The second one is this. Maybe you can relate to the Sanhedrin. I can. Because there's times in my life where I'm comfortable and my pride gets in the way and I say, God, no, no, I don't like what you're saying right now because I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. I don't want change. But God is telling us to be broken, to humble ourselves, to get rid of our pride and allow him to do what's best for us. Amen? If you want that, if you want to say, God, take away my pride, help me to have the grace that you're offering me, tick that box. And the third option is if I want to be restored. Maybe you've heard the gospel before and you've gone, wow, that's really cool and my friends got baptized or, you know, that sounds, but you've never really experienced restoration in your life. You've never truly experienced the Holy Spirit come in with power and change your heart and restore your life to bring healing from past sins, past hurts, past problems, even current situations. God is here, here to heal. God is here to restore. If that's what you want, if you want restoration in your life, then tick that box as well. On the right, we have several options and you can feel free to tick any of those as well. And the ushers will go through and collect them as we have the final songs. Dear Father in heaven, we've heard you speak to us through Acts chapter 4. You called us to the message of restoration, that you are a God of love, who has not left us abandoned, left us to perish as we wither away like a branch in the wind. But Father, you have come to reconnect us. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branch. And he that abides in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Father, we can do nothing without you. And we're here today to fall on our knees and say, Lord, help us. We need change. We want to be restored. Take away our pride. Take away the things that are blocking us from you. And fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may have the boldness to testify to a dying world that Jesus is coming soon. Amen.